like for the rest of you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be looking together today at verses 1 through 11. And uh, I, I just want to kind of let you know where we are. We're kind of working our way through Paul's discussion and instruction of us of the whole plan of salvation. And we're kind of, you know, we've had our nose right up to the tree bark, <laughs> looking at the little knot holes and the, and the characters of the trees. Every once in a while you need to pull out of the forest and get in some kind of a airplane or helicopter or something and get up high and get the overview and be reminded of what's happening in the whole forest. I want to give you a little bit of that this morning because Romans 5, 1 through 11 is really a transitional passage. This whole paragraph leads from one part of Paul's argument and explanation into the next. We started out in chapter 1 after Paul said his hellos and how are you's. In verse 18, all the way into chapter 3, verse about 20, Paul deals with the subject and the problem of sin and sin history and our sin nature, and he takes us through a very reasoned explanation of why every human being is lost in sin without Jesus Christ. And he brings us to that grand summary at the beginning of chapter 3 where he says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God. There is none that does good. All of us have turned away. The poison of vipers is under our tongues. We, we have all gone our own direction. And whether we are Jews who have received the law from God or are good moralists among the culture or whether we're outright pagans, the reality is we all have a sin history and we all need a Savior because we can't save ourselves. We can't get rid of that blight and that blot upon our lives that has placed us in adversity with God. And so Paul proves to us in those early chapters that every human being needs a Savior. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, he, he begins to answer that immediate problem that we all face by explaining that Jesus Christ has become the sacrifice for my sin, that He has taken my sin, that He has accepted my penalty, the, the perfect Lamb of God, the sinless man, the eternal Son of God, has taken my place in punishment, and on the cross He has borne my sin, and with His blood He has cleansed me. And that cleansing before God is available to me, not by working hard, but by simply trusting and believing in God, when he says, I will put your sin on Jesus if you will trust him as Lord and Savior. And so Paul says he is the answer to the problem of our sin history, our adversity with God. Jesus is the solution. 
And he illustrates that beautifully with Abraham, who before the law and before circumcision believed God. In, and in anticipation of the cross, it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul comes to the end of that great illustration of Abraham's life and, and explains to us that we are fully justified before God in Christ Jesus on the basis of faith alone. And so we come to chapter 5 and we're about to transition into a whole new realm. Because you see, we have two problems, not just one. We have the problem of sins, plural, that we have committed, that have blotted and blighted our lives, that have stained us. And when we stand before the court of justice, in the eternal presence of God, the righteous judge, we are guilty because of specific acts and deeds and behaviors that God can point to and say, here and here and here and here, you have broken my law. And they are myriad. There are tens of thousands since the day of our birth where we have violated the law and the, the character of God, and stand condemned. And so that's a problem. We've got to deal with that. And, and this whole argument in chapters 3, 4, and the first part of 5 answers that question. But our second problem is, we not only have a sin history, we have a sin nature. And we are bent towards sinning, just like uh, anything on this planet that goes up must eventually come down because of a law called gravity. The Bible teaches us that we have a nature like gravity that is a law, that Paul actually calls the law of sin and death. It's a law like gravity is a law. It's a law that pulls us down. It's a law from which our sins flow because our nature is corrupt and we are bent in rebellion against God. And Paul is about to turn the corner and say, not only is Jesus the answer for our sin history, but He is also the answer for our sin problem. Not only can He remove from us the stains of our unrighteous behavior, but He can also empower us to overcome the law of sin and death and live godly lives in Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not left helpless, merely cleansed, but we are empowered to live new lives in the power of Jesus Christ and in His resurrection life. And Paul is about to explain to us in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 how the Lord Jesus has freed us from the bondage of the law of sin and death and the bondage of, of the law and released us to walk in freedom in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're in that transitional paragraph between these two great applications of the cross. And here, here is what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. <coughs> In this passage, there are three things that I want us to consider this morning as we listen to Paul summarizing uh, the, the results of justification by faith and preparing us for the explanation of sanctification or, or godliness on the basis of faith. First of all, we want to look at the benefits of justification. Then we want to look at the blessings of trials. And then we want to see the love of God that toward sinners is magnified even more in the lives of his children. Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, you remember that principle of Bible interpretation I've said to you so many times? One of them is, whenever you see the word therefore, find out what it's there for. It's there for a reason and it's the reason that because everything he said before leads up to this statement, therefore having been justified by faith. Paul says, I rest my case on justification by faith. I have explained it thoroughly. I have dealt with it in depth. I have illustrated it by the life of Abraham. And you should be fully understanding now that we have been justified by faith. And I think I've explained it thoroughly as well. <laughs> and we should be fully aware of what it means to be justified by faith. We stand in God's presence just as if I'd never sinned on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Paul says there is an immediate blessing that comes from that condition of being right with God. He says having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have peace with God? Well, you know, sometimes when you're troubled and you're in turmoil and you're filled with anxiety, you say, I need some peace in my life. I, I, I need, and what you mean by that is I need tranquility. I need something to calm me. I need some soothing. I need to feel less anxious. I need quiet. I need peace. But that's not the kind of peace that Paul is talking about here. There is that kind of peace, 
Come and cast all your cares upon Him, all your anxieties, because He cares for you. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which goes beyond comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is the tranquility, the soothing, the calming peace that God gives us that is available. But this peace is the peace that comes when the war has ended. This is the peace that comes when the fight is over and the truce has been signed. This is the judicial peace that comes when we have no more problem with God and He has no more problem with us. Friends, one of the things that unbelievers do not realize, and I have deep compassion this morning for our brother Hector and his um, father, Jorge, because unbelievers do not realize that they are at war with God. They are his enemy. God loves the sinner, but he does not minimize his anger towards sin. And the Bible says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Friends, when you meet God, there's one thing you do not want him to be. And that is angry with you. Because there is no anger like the anger of Almighty God. Just as His love is infinite and amazing, just as His mercy is infinite, just as His grace is infinite, just as His power is all-powerful, His anger is without bounds. His wrath is with infinity, with no limitation. He is just as angry as He is loving. And he has the capacity to vent that wrath fully upon creatures who have resisted his will. That message was brought home so clearly in the famous sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. When he described in that church in Northampton back in those days, when God poured his spirit out upon that congregation and the great awakening came to the Americas. As he preached that sermon and helped people to realize that their life hung literally by a thread, uh, they were a hair's breadth away from eternal damnation, their heart could stop at any moment, they could cease this life and pass into the presence of an angry God who would deal with them justly and they would spend eternity in hell bearing the brunt of his wrath. That is not a good place to be. And Paul says, through justification by faith, we have peace with God. He isn't angry anymore. There is no more wrath. It was all exhausted on Jesus on the cross. And when we come by faith into that state of pure justification by the grace of God, we stand in the presence of one who is no longer angry with us. It's an amazing thing. It's as if the judge of the universe, there in the courts of eternity, pulls off the majestic robe of his righteous judgment and lays it aside and steps from behind the bench and comes around the bar and opens his arms and says, My daughter, my son, welcome home to my family.
That's what it means to have peace with God. It's all over. The war is ended. And I am at rest in the presence of my Heavenly Father who has already judged me in Jesus. And that aspect of His character has ended forever as far as I'm concerned. He is no longer my judge. He is my Father. And I can relate to Him in that way. Paul says, this is amazing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Paul says this justification by faith, which brings peace with God, brings us into a state of grace that is like a new land. It's like a realm as I was meditating on this passage, a, a rather crazy analogy came to my mind, but it reminded me of Alice in Wonderland. It's like you go through the tunnel and you come out into a new world. This is, this is not just a, an extension of some judicial kind of act, oh, grace be upon you. This is the introduction into a realm of living, into a kingdom I envision myself kind of like living in a bubble. That on this planet that is so filled with, with sin and sickness and treachery and all that goes with that, there is this lovely, beautiful other world that is, that is a, a, like a glassed-in environment and the presence of God is brightly shining there. And I have been ushered into this entire new universe that I can explore freely in the realm of grace. In the 8 o'clock service, I got so carried away with that, the realm of grace and the land of grace, I called it Graceland. <laughs> I want you to know it has no relationship to Elvis Presley whatsoever. <laughs> it's entirely different. But God invites us into a land a realm, a place called grace. And he says that the justification by faith and the peace with God is our mere introduction. Have you explored the land? I had a very dear and loved professor when I was in college. His name was Dr. Jerry Sproul and Jerry was a, an, he, had a, he just had a unique personality. He, he was a chemical engineer by training. And then God got a hold of his heart and turned him into a theology professor. It was kind of an interesting switch. And he was, and gave him a pastor's heart. And he put all those things together. And he had a great sense of humor. And I just loved his classes. And I'll never forget one of the stories, that, that the analogies that he used. Because six, the Six Flags places were kind of new at that time, back in the early 70s. And Six Flags over Georgia, I think, may have been one of the first ones to be built. And, and it was like, you know, it was like, if you didn't live on the West Coast, it was like going to Disney World or Disneyland, you know. It was a place of rides and shows and all kinds of things. And you had all kinds of opportunity. And he said, many Christians are like a person that buys a ticket to Six Flags over Georgia. 
and they're looking forward to the day, and they've got their ticket, and they, and they go to the gate, and their ticket stamped, and they get their little hand stamped, and they go through the turnstile, and then they open up this little camp stool and sit down. And they think, I made it, I got the six flags, I'm in! And there they sit, until the day is over and they have to leave. So many Christians come to Christ, and that's just how they live. They walk through the turnstile of grace. They come into the land of grace. They come into freedom with God and peace with God and forgiveness. And they're justified and they're right with God. Their destiny is secured through the blood of the Lamb. And they open their little Christian stool and they sit down as if that's all there is. There's a whole realm, a whole kingdom, a whole land to explore. It's called grace. It's not just a position, it's a place, it's an experience, it's a lifetime of discovery, it's an adventure, and it's a land of freedom. And God says, this is just the beginning Friend, if you have come to Jesus Christ by faith and and, and you thought that just securing a place in heaven was all that that meant, you have been deceived. You don't understand. You've just crossed the turnstile. There's the whole adventure land out in front of you. Close that stool up and let's go. There's something brand new to discover every day in the land of grace. We've obtained our introduction. And he says, furthermore, we can be free in this realm. We can enjoy this realm because we know where it's going. You know what creates anxiety in a person's life? Turmoil? Is when they don't know what's happening to them. And they're uncertain about the outcome. You know? And friends, we may not know exactly what what path our lives are going to take, but I'll tell you what, every one of us should know the last chapter. It's in the end of the book. We know where we're headed. We know how it ends. No matter what course our life takes, no matter what path we travel, no matter what difficulties come along the way, we know how it ends. We have the end of the book. You can read it. I get amused at my wife. She'll get deeply immersed in in a novel or something and and she'll skip to the end to to find out how, you know, and I I don't want to know. It ruins the whole book for me. But here, I want to know. I want to know. And God has told me how the story ends. I go to heaven. I'm in the presence of God. I have new heaven and new earth with all the saints, my my brothers and sisters, and I'm going to be there forever, free from sin, free from death, free from sorrow, free from trouble, free from problems, free from pain, free from everything that bothers me now. I'm going to be with Jesus and and my family. I know how it ends. Paul says, man... We've been introduced to this realm called grace, and and we have the hope of God that we can glory in. What could be better? We are secure 
in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. What? Wait a minute. Should I have just stopped a minute ago? Should that have been the end of the sermon? That's really where we want it to stop, isn't it? I gave you a question in your discussion guide. Do you think the new perspective on trials and tribulations is just a mind game that Christians play? Why or why not? We exalt in tribulations. No, we don't. (laughs) We want to get out of tribulations. That's why we came to Jesus, right? We got the message. You not only go to heaven, but he solves all your problems. He'll make you rich, he'll make you well, he'll take care of everything. It's easy street. Paul says, no. He says, we exult in our tribulations because when we come into wonderland, (laughs) when we come into this realm of grace, the challenges and difficulties of life take on new meaning. They bring us a new perspective. And it's a perspective that enables us to rejoice in the midst of them. How does that work? Well, he says, we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out through our hearts, in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What's that all about? Friends, until we see Jesus, we're still in this world. And there is nothing in the Scripture that says that you and I are going to escape the difficulties that are common to human life. From time to time, you're going to get sick. From time to time, you're going to have problems. From time to time, your relationships are going to go sour. From time to time, you're going to experience the death of a loved one. And if Jesus tarries, you're going to face your own. Every human being has this difficulty. It isn't going anywhere. And not only that, but what I think in our evangelism, and I'm not so sure that we should necessarily put this disclaimer on the front end, but in our evangelism, we often neglect to tell people, That peace with God means we made a new enemy. We lived our whole lives in the world on the same side as the devil. And he wasn't too terribly troubled because he already had us in his clutches and there wasn't any argument to speak of. But when you declare yourself aligned with Jesus Christ and come by faith into a relationship with God called justification and peace with God, guess who declares war? 
We have an enemy, the devil, who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he has you in his beady little sight. He's got his eyes on you. He wants to bring you down. That's his goal. So not only do you have the common troubles of life, but you add to that the enmity with the devil whose kingdom you have left and who is not in the least happy about it. And if he can't keep you out of heaven, his next game is to at least make your life miserable and keep you from having any kind of victory. To defeat you and to destroy you. Make no mistake. He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Paul says, to us believers who are now living in this realm of grace, we exult in tribulation. Why? Why would you do that? First of all, because difficulties, when faced with God totally changed the, the name of the game. They changed the picture. They teach us something. They have value. You know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not picking on young people in particular, but in our age, it seems like more and more, fewer and fewer people have a sense of destiny, a sense of goals, a sense of purpose. It's like... The only reason we do any kind of work at all is so we can survive. And, and, and when we survive, it's so that we can eat food and watch TV and do a little more work so we can do all that again. And lacking purpose, lacking focus, lacking direction, lacking goals leaves a person feeling empty inside. It's another thing to chase goals that have false endings. You know, there is another problem. People who are totally absorbed in accomplishing goals and objectives of, of this world end up at the end of their life feeling empty and, 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 and void and like they've missed something. But there is nothing like having a sense of accomplishment and victory, of having a sense that I have done something meaningful. I have, I have made a contribution that has counted. I have accomplished a goal that was significant. Don't you love it when you've done something well and you worked all week on a project and your boss says, man, that's a good job. Or you make that sale you've been after or you get to do that thing you've been longing to do and you get the satisfaction of saying, well done. Friends, there is nothing like hearing God say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of you, daughter. You have done well. Enjoy my fellowship and my blessing. There's nothing that adds meaning to life like hearing God give His approval. And the Scripture says He's going to do that. 
And there's nothing more satisfying than coming to the end of a day and knowing that the God of the universe who holds things together by the word of his power communicates with your heart as you lay upon your pillow, I am pleased with you, my child. There's nothing like knowing you can have a run at a tough situation and come out victoriously on the other end. I want to give you a little insight into firefighters. They're a weird lot. For a number of years, I worked with one of the rescue squads as a firefighter paramedic, so I'm not pointing fingers. It's kind of like we're a weird lot. There are strange things that get us excited. And I remember when we got new turnout gear. Now, turnout gear, for those of you that are not initiated, are those boots and coats and helmets that the firemen wear, you know. And um, you keep them at the ready. You got the boots and, and, the, and the pants are down around them with the suspenders and the coats hanging on the hook and the helmets on the top. And, you know, when the alarm sounds, you run out and you jump in the boots, you pull up the suspenders and you zip up the pants and you put on the coat and you slap on the helmet and then you've got your Nomex hood that goes under the helmet and your mask and you're ready to go. And to get newer, lighter, better, more heat-resistant, more fire-resistant turnout gear was a real treat. You know what people want to do, firefighters want to do as soon as they get that? They want to set a fire and try it out. <laughs> they, they want to go to the smoke tower, man. They, <laughs> Dick's over here laughing at me. <laughs> I'm not picking on you, am I? <laughs> I want to see how that stuff works. So they want to set a fire. They want to get in and check out the gear, see if it's going to meet the test, man. I've known firefighters, some of the old timers, that refused to wear the Nomex hoods because the fire gear got so good, they said, we have no idea how hot it is. We could be cooking. We could be turning into a steamed sausage and not know it. They wanted their neck to, to be exposed. That's another story. But anyway... They want, to, they want to check out that gear and make sure, that, see how well it works. To put it to the test and see if it's going to save their life, see if it's going to handle the, the, the difficulty. And there's a great sense that comes over you when you've gone through the fires of life and you've emerged. You haven't fallen apart. You haven't disintegrated. Your life hasn't turned into shambles, but, but you have been through the fire with, with God at your side and empowering you in His Spirit. And you know what it's like to face the battle and win. Paul says, we're not living in the world anymore the way we used to. We're in the realm of grace. We are at peace with God. He is on our side. We are with Him. We face these trials now in His power. And we have what it takes in the Holy Spirit to face the, the tests and the trials and the troubles of life and win those battles. And it builds character. It builds strength. We learn what our gear is made of. And we find out what it's like to face the trials of life with Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit and to know that we don't have to be afraid of those things anymore because they will not destroy us. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. 
And as we learn that and learn that and learn that more, man, we learn more and more what it's like to live in the land of grace because the power of God is sufficient. Don't make any mistake about it. Tribulation is not fun. Nobody asks for it. If you're praying for trials, just stop right now. You don't have to pray for them. They will find you. And nobody likes them. You're crazy if you like them. If you want them. I mean, we're not talking about Christian masochism here. The Apostle Paul, when he was afflicted with a thorn in the flesh, what did he do? He said, God, get rid of it. I don't like this thing. It's bugging me. Get this out of my life. Three times he went to God and he said, get this thing out of my life. It's bothering me. It's dragging me down. And after hearing no for three times, Paul asked a very logical question. Do not be afraid to ask God this question. Why? Why? If you're not taking it away, at least give me an answer. What's the deal? And I don't know if Paul heard the answer the moment he prayed that or if that took another three months, six months, a year, five years. I don't know how long it took, but this is what he heard. Paul, this has been given you to prevent you from falling away from me in ways that you can't even imagine. And even though it makes you weak, I want you to know that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul changed his whole attitude. He basically said, okay, God, bring it on. If that's what it does for me, I will glory in my weakness that the power of God can be demonstrated in me. Friends, when we're in the midst of these trials and troubles now in our newfound relationship with God... Paul says, we have hope, we have developing character, we have strength, and we find that God's grace is adequate. And we learn that I can have my power or I can have his power. Whose do you want? I want his. And all the while, he says, it does not disappoint, it brings proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What is the goal of coming into a relationship with God? You may not know this the day you get saved. The day you get saved, your goal may be to get rid of this horrible guilt and sense of doom that I feel. But pretty soon you should learn that the Holy Spirit's desire is to bring you home to God, to bring you into relationship. The goal of having a relationship with God is to have a relationship, to get to know Him, to become intimate with God. Guess what builds intimacy with God? Trouble. Trouble. Paul says, I want to know the sufferings of Christ. I want to get intimate with Him in sufferings because I know that I will know things about Jesus that can only be learned in the fire. Do you remember those three Hebrew leaders that refused to bow to the king and he threw them in the furnace 
And do you remember what the king said? The furnace was so hot, the guys that threw him in got burned up. And he, and, and he looks through into the furnace, and here are these three guys, and they're not burned up, they're walking around. And then he looks again, and he checks his eyes, and he says, I put three in there. Who's that other guy walking? There's four people in there. And when he brought them out of there, the scripture says they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. I get the smell of smoke when I barbecue. These guys came out of this furnace and didn't even have a, a, a whiff of smoke. And there was a fourth guy in there with them. Who was it? It was Jesus. In the Old Testament, a pre-incarnate appearance, a Christophany for those of you that are into big words. Jesus appeared in the furnace, God in the flesh, with those three faithful men. And they walked with Him in the fire. God will never leave you in the realm of grace. He will walk with you. And if you want to get to know Him intimately, man, when trouble comes and you draw near and you cry out to Him and you begin to talk to Him about the issues and the needs and lean on Him, you get really close with God. And if that's the goal, man, this is a way to do it. And Paul says when we go through this trouble with God, not only does it develop character, but the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. We are full of His love. We know His compassion. We sense His care. That's why Paul can say, he's not, he hasn't lost his mind. He's not a crazy man. He says, look at tribulation in this new perspective. I know the last chapter. I know how this is going to end. I don't have any fears of how my life's going to turn out. I know how it's going to turn out. And when I go through the fire, I get Jesus really up close and personal. He says, you know what that makes me do when trouble comes my way? I praise God. I rejoice. It's a new adventure with Jesus. Friends, I know that we don't think that way very, very much. But if we understand how it works in the land of grace, He's giving us a foreshadowing. He's getting us ready for His discussion of how when the rubber meets the road of life, the Holy Spirit of God demonstrates His power in us. These next chapters are going to be all about that. And here's a preview. It gets really good with God when it gets really tough in the land of grace. And that's a segue into his last comment that the love of God toward us sinners is magnified when we are his children. Look at what he says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from His wrath, the wrath of God through Christ. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Do you get Paul's argument here? Do you hear, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look at Those of you that are wondering about the love of God, those of you that the devil's beat, beating up on, and, and you just feel like, man, I've, I've failed, I've stumbled, I, I've bit the dust, I, I can't talk to God. God's got to be upset with me, he's got to be ticked off, man... I don't know if I should even try to pray. He says, do you people get it? Look, if God loved you so much when you were a dirty, rotten, filthy, vile, foul-mouthed, perverted mind, rebellious sinner that He gave Jesus to die on the cross when you were in that condition, What's up with thinking he's not going to care about you when you're his child? What are you thinking, he says? The love of God is demonstrated to us in the cross. How much more does he love his children? And then he gives us this very real example. He says, hardly anybody will die for a righteous man. But perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. Some of you have heard me tell this illustration before, but we have to understand what he's saying here. Why wouldn't somebody die for a righteous man? Well, what righteous means in this context is somebody who is exactly right. Someone who is dead on the money with all the rules. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say there's a local grocery store in town. You happen to know the owner. Let's say it's Angelos, and you happen to know the, the owner, and... And you've known them, you were high school friends, and you've known this person all your life. And you've fallen on hard times, and you've got a family at home that needs food, and you're out of money. And you go to your friend, and you say, I, could you spot me some groceries for a week? I, I can pay you back next Friday. And he says, you know, I'm really sorry, but there are rules here at the store and everybody has to pay. You either have to have cash or debit card or credit card. I mean, we can't just, we don't give credit like that. If you'd like to apply for a Visa card, you can go over to the local bank and I'm sure that, you know, you can't get a Visa card when you're in that condition. You can't ever get money when you need it. You can only get money if you have enough that you don't need it. you got to have enough collateral. That's the only time you can get a loan. Sorry, Jan, I'm not picking on you, but it's the, it's just the way it goes. <laughs> you know, and so you, so you say, but I don't have any groceries. My family's hungry. He says, well, I'm sorry. I can't do anything for you. That's the rules of the store. Well, it, it was just for a week, just between you and me. No, I'm sorry. You, you can't take groceries out of here. It's got to go through the computer. It's got to be reckoning. If the product's missing on the shelf, there's got to be answers. We've got to keep the rules. And so you go home hungry. Paul says not too many people are going to be really inspired to die for somebody like that. You know? Can you see it? Who's going to give their life? Who's going to put their life on the line for that kind of a person? Uh, Yeah, they're right. They're always right. They're disgustingly right. But they're so wrong. 
But you go to the good guy. He, he's the same grocer, but he's a good grocer. You know what he does? He says, well, you know what? There's some rules here. I can't, I can't violate them. I mean, I, I do own the store, but we set these policies up, and I can't change them. But he says, I'll tell you what, i got $50 in my pocket. And you go, you go get what you need up to $50, and I'll pay for it. And next Friday, you can just come and pay me. But I don't want you to be hungry. If you can't pay me, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. That's a good man. Paul says, you know what? There's folks that would put their life on the line for a guy like that. You can see that, can't you? I'll go out on the limb for that guy. He blesses people. He's good. But he says, look at what God did for you. You weren't righteous. You weren't even close. And you weren't good. You were self-centered, hell-bent, rebellious, shaking your fist at God, doing what you pleased. And God said, I love you so much that I'm going to send my only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And you don't even know what it's about. You won't even understand it until I wake you up by my spirit. You won't even connect with what I'm doing. But I'm going to send my son to die for you while you are my enemy. Paul says, if God does that when you're the enemy, how much more will he love you when you're the child? Friends, listen to me. Listen. Some of you are struggling. Some of you are going through a tough time, and you're not sure where you stand with God. Put that to rest. Put that to rest. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been justified by faith, if you have peace with God, guess what? God loves you dearly. And He is here now to help, to empower, to encourage, to fill you with His Spirit. He is here to give you what you need. He is here to to meet you in your circumstances. He is not far away ignoring you. There may be discipline and teaching and training and all those kinds of things, but it comes from a Father's hand who loves you more than you can ever imagine. The battle is over, people. We're not at war with God anymore. His arms are open wide. His heart is open. And we can have fellowship and feel and sense His love If God has done this through His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved? That word saved there in that verse 10 does not mean like as in, I got saved today, eternally. It means in the midst of my trial, how much more will I be delivered by the life of Jesus Christ? How much more will He come to me? How much more will He help me? How much more will He empower me? How much more will He comfort me? By the life of Jesus Christ, I will be saved. And not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know what reconciliation means? We are friends again. 
Jesus said, I have not called you slaves. Slaves don't know what their master's up to. But I have called you my friends. There's nothing sweeter than reconciliation. When you've been at odds and there's been a rift in the relationship, there's nothing sweeter than having your hearts knit together again and being in unity and being one. And we have been reconciled to God. Friends, don't go out there and face the difficulties of life thinking you've got to hack it out on your own. You're the child of God. He loves you. He is never closer than when you're in trouble. And he is never more accessible than when you have need. And even if you've failed, even if you've fallen and bit the dust, even if you're laying in the mud, don't be afraid to cry out for help and ask Him to pick you up. Don't get down there and let the devil convince you in your pride that you've got to somehow dust yourself off and clean off the mud of yourself and, and, and make it... You know, you don't have to. Many of you are parents. You know this. How many of you would let your child stumble and fall into the gutter on the street side and, and get bruises and cuts and just say, well, you stupid, if you'd been smarter, you wouldn't have tripped like that. Just figure it out yourself. How many of you would do that? You wouldn't. You don't even think about the fact that they were disobeying and pulling away from you and, and, and trying to get out on their own. and You don't even think about that. You're immediately to the rescue because you love them. We can deal with the discipline issues and the pulling away and all that kind of stuff later. We've got to deal with Yowies right now. You know that. Do you think God loves you less? Man, look to Jesus. We are reconciled. Father, thank you, and help us get it. We have peace. We can rejoice in trouble because you're near. We can bask in your love because you will help. You are our friend, our Father. Thank you, O oh God, for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.